0: Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show Podcast. I'm your Saturday host, Sterling Fox, and today, Second Harvest CEO Lori Nichols says, best before dates are, at best, misleading. ABLE BC Executive Director Jeff Gignard says the BCGEU targeting liquor distribution to hurt the hospitality industry is insane. And Canadian Federation of Independent Business Vice President Laura Jones talks about tough times post-pandemic still for many small businesses right across Canada. So let's get started let me throw a quote at you from uh, an article written uh, in the national newspapers by our next guest. Best before dates are about quality, not safety. They're not the same as expiry dates. In other words, Best before dates are created by the same companies invested in consumers buying their products as regularly as possible. Without real guidelines in place, there's plenty of potential for the system to be abused in pursuit of profits. This under the headline, best before dates on food are long past their prime in Canada. The author of the piece is Laurie Nicol, the CEO of Second Harvest, Canada's largest food restaurant rescue organization. Laurie Nichol joins us this morning from Toronto. Laurie, good morning and thanks for being with us today.
1: Good morning, Sterling. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, it's great to have you with us. Saw the article. I read it in the Montreal Gazette a few days ago and went, Oh my, uh, this is a bit of an eye popper. Most people don't pay much attention to anything other than what the date says without thinking too much about what's going on behind it. Don't we?
1: That's absolutely true. And people correlate the best before date with food safety, when, in fact, it's not about safety, it's about peak freshness.
0: Now, talk to us about that. What, of course, we obviously recognize the difference. You say it's about quality rather than safety. But what are the rules, if any, regarding best before dates?
1: So, I think before we do that, we have to explain the difference between best before and expiry. Because people often think they mean the same thing. Yes. And they don't. And so, in Canada, there's only five foods that expire And it is about the nutritional quality of that food. So they would be um, baby formula. Because after that date, the nutrients degrade. And so the the baby needs that formula to have all the nutrients. Sure. The other one would be like insurer products for seniors, meal replacements. Mm -hmm. Same reason. Or or like protein bars or meal replacements. So if you're running a race and you really need those nutrients to keep yourself going, we want to make sure that that's factual. The other two are by prescription only. So, don't worry about it unless your doctor tells you to worry about it. Everything else is a best before that is put on by manufacturers. And they're so conservative. And many foods that have best before dates, a good example would be water, uh, don't require, like, don't need a best before date and shouldn't have one at all. So, it does push us into buying foods and wasting food, which is the real problem here is we're throwing all this food away. And we shouldn't be.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. You would would say water, too. Now, because a lot of us will go, why would water have a best before date? Oh, wait a second. It's in a plastic container. And maybe after date X, the water becomes in some way tainted by its plastic and it should be tossed. And that's just nonsense, isn't it?
1: It is nonsense. I mean, absolutely. Things leach like plastic. We shouldn't be, you know, using plastic for most things anyway. But that's a different day, a different topic. Uh, (laughs) But best before dates really are about, like, when you think about it, we don't value food in this country or, or the Western world at all because it's so far removed from us. So so we think that everybody has the best intentions and it's about food safety. But, like, if you think about the war when there was food scarcity, there was no best before dates. Best before dates are relatively new. Right. Um, and now we're also stuck in this cultural mindset of this is about safety, this is about safety. If we can break that habit – Use our common sense. That doesn't mean that we should be eating spoiled food. We should be just understanding what these things mean. And so on top of the date, if you throw anything in a freezer and everything freezes, Mm -hmm. that stops the degradation of the food right in that moment. So you can then again, you can eat meat for up to a year.
0: Laurie, I wanted, to, I wanted to point again another, uh, just a quick uh, item from the piece that you wrote. And this is, a, again, a bit of an eye popper. Research shows that nearly 60% of all food produced in Canada, over 35 million tons, is lost or wasted annually. According to the United Nations, the average Canadian wastes about 79 kilograms of food every year, surpassing the average American. By 20 kilograms, that's almost 50 pounds. That's an enormous amount of waste. Tell us more.
1: Oh, isn't that horrible? Yeah. It's so sad. It's, so, there's a, uh, waste is lost across the whole supply chain. And best before dates aren't just at the home. They happen at retail. It happens in transit. It happens at the manufacturer. So, you can have tractor trailer loads of food that have a best before date that's getting close uh, or maybe if, uh, two months away, but retail won't accept it then. But we waste so much food in this country, it's mind-boggling. And the reality is that most of this food ends up in landfill, Mm -hmm. cheap. And when it goes into landfill, it creates methane gas, and that is a direct contributor to the climate crisis. In the world, 8% of all global emissions are about food waste. So it's a really simple thing that we should be managing a whole lot better.
0: You know, and yet we are—we're we're very conscious of these best-before dates. Now, obviously, for a product like milk or something like that, it did not matter; it's a great deal. But uh, in a lot of cases, we're, we're very picky. I know, as a consumer, I'm a label reader, so um, and I'm always looking at best-before dates, and I'm making sure I'm not putting anything in the in the shopping cart that is dated. And I always I get a little ticked when I'm going, "Wait a second! This is the store. This is dated. They can't sell this." And so uh, we. we We are conscious of the best before date without perhaps really understanding what that date's all about.
1: Exactly. And it really has... It's just a number. It's a conservative number. So, I mean, and there's so many resources. At Second Harvest, if you go to our website, there's resources that tell you how long this food will actually last, right? The milk will last a couple weeks. The eggs will last a couple weeks. But again, if you throw it in the freezer, it lasts for much, much longer. So the dates really are arbitrary for the most part. Most of the foods that actually even have dates don't need them at all. And so some of the foods that do, they're just so conservative that they don't, they're not valuable anymore. So I think we all just need to shift our mindset and start thinking about, look, is this safe to eat? If it's safe, does, does it pass a smell test? When you look at it does, it, does it pass the test? And I think we're just so concerned about food safety, and we should be always, don't get me wrong, but we're being misled that this is about food safety because it's not.
0: So where is the role of government in all of this? I mean, we, we always uh, we're always looking to government for answers, sometimes erroneously. But however, they're the ones with the guidelines and all the rest of it. Health Canada and various other agencies, CFIA and so on. So what is the role of government in all of this in terms of explaining to consumers, Lori, the difference between expiry and best before?
1: Well, I think their role actually is broader than this, and it really is about food waste, period. And we have made a commitment to the UN that we would have food waste by 2030, and we made that commitment in 2015. And the truth is that we're not actually regulated. No business is regulated to measure it. We have not set targets. There's no no support to measure your food loss and waste because what happens if... The government of Canada says you must measure, meet these targets, report on it. We'll support you with some resources or tools or funding, whatever you need to get there. And if you don't hit this target, then there's repercussions. Well, we know when that happens, innovation flourishes. Mm -hmm. And the first thing food or businesses are going to look at is those best before dates. And that will prevent a whole lot at source because we way overproduce for Canadians
0: okay so tell us a little bit about second harvest because you you identify yourself proudly as canada's largest food rescue organization tell us about what you you were doing you talk about innovation flourishing so tell us about some of the innovations second harvest has come up with laurie
1: absolutely so we are what we do is rescue surplus perishable primarily food in the categories of produce protein and dairy and we do a great deal of research, so that 58% of all food lost and wasted is a second harvest research. We identified how many charities are actually using food in Canada, and it's 61,000. Mm. So our goal is to make sure that those 61,000 charities or non get this surplus food instead of it going into landfill. So we divert it to them. We do it through. Uh, we have a fleet and warehouse in Toronto. We have a food rescue app that I would encourage every nonprofit to access and every food business. So Starbucks, for example, is a national partner or Sobeys. They'll put their food on the app and a nonprofit in the neighborhood will say, I'll take it. Sure. And they take it. Interesting. Yeah. And so we're just moving food across this country instead of ensuring it doesn't go into landfill because we really see ourselves as an environmental organization. Keep that food out of landfill. Everybody should be eating it, rich or poor.
0: Second uh, secondharvest.ca, by the way, is their excellent website with lots more information about uh, what they do with food. And, and again, no waste, no hunger. We're on a mission to grow our innovative, efficient food recovery network to fuel people and reduce the environmental impact of avoidable food waste. And that's what it's all about. Lori Nichol, thanks ever so much for making yourself available to us this morning. Great to have you on the show and continued success at Second Harvest.
1: Thank you so much. You have a wonderful day.
0: We live under a new regime in terms of alcohol consumption in the province of British Columbia this weekend. Bars, restaurants, and individuals will only be permitted to buy a certain quantity of alcohol. Purchases will be limited to no more than three of any individual item per day. This is effective immediately and until further notice. Uh, uh, our next guest has been quoted in the paper this morning as saying, this is insane. The only reason B.C. liquor stores are rationing quantities is because of the strike, which is shutting down the distribution warehouses. This according to ABLE BC Executive Director Jeff Gignard, who joins us this morning. Jeff, uh, you've been quite a regular here on CKNW the past couple of days. We do appreciate your getting up early to do it one more time. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Well, it's good to have you with us, and it's tough times. We're going to talk to Laura Jones from the Canadian Federation of Independent Business in our next half Mm -hmm. hour, Jeff, about uptick in business bankruptcies Uh, Canada-wide. this uh, liquor rationing is uh, is uh, particularly impacting a business that in many cases, it's still on its knees, struggling to get back on its feet in the first place from two years of pandemic. Talk to us yeah. about what people in your your licensees are saying to you.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, the the challenge here is things have really gotten out of hand. Uh, whatever the issues are in the labor dispute between the BCTU and government, that has nothing to do with the industry. But. By striking in front of these four warehouses that supply about forty percent of the alcohol in the entire province, they're making it all of our problems. So what you saw in yesterday, when government stores, beefy liquor stores, started putting in quantity limits yeah. on some products, particularly the popular ones, they're not making limits on beer. There's no shortage of beer in the province, but on import products and you know, hayalls and refreshment products like that, um, they're they're now you know causing damage to the very small businesses that we've all been wanting to help and support get through the pandemic. I don't think people realize that the, you know, the financial damage from the pandemic is still playing out in our industry. Yes, We lost about 15% of pubs and restaurants and bars through the pandemic, and a lot of them are just limping through this summer, and now we're dealing with this.
0: So, um, what uh, uh, were many of the uh, members of your association, Jeff, able to sort of read the writing on the wall and place uh, larger orders in in advance of what they suspected might be coming down?
2: Well, in some cases, yeah, you try and stock up a little bit, but you know this, these labor discussions have been going on for months sure. now, right? And um, and even when they did, you know, announce they were going to strike, we had still had serious hopes that both sides would, would come to the table and figure it out. I mean, we're a $15 billion industry with thousands of small businesses and over 200,000 workers. So we we're really hoping that everybody would understand that what was at risk here and not go down this route. And it's really frustrating because the only reason that we're limiting quantities or you're seeing these impacts is because the two sides are not even at the negotiation table. Right. right. Now. So that, that's really frustrating for us. And we feel like we're um, you know someone needs to send an adult in the room get the two sides back to the table and negotiate because we're now being impacted and consumers are being impacted by this and this is just not fair
0: and and so in terms of appetite for that return to the at least sitting face to face in the same room discussing details which appears to be not happening even a little bit what what sort of pressure are you as a as an alliance as a, as an organization are, are what sort of pressure are you able to bring? bring to bear on particularly government, but, but even both parties. Yeah, well, we,
2: we've we been speaking with government every single day, multiple times a day since the strike began on Sunday. We've been clear in media repeatedly that you know, this this is quite serious. It's going to get worse before it gets better. And customers are not going to see that this weekend. We have even opened communication with the BCGU and said this is impacting our small businesses. That's not fair. We're not part of your fight. And all sides just seem to be sympathizing, but uh, no one is actually moving and doing anything right now. And that that's what's deeply frustrating for us. And I, I think it's probably going to be quite frustrating for consumers out there. These so- limits... Sir, go ahead.
0: No, I was just going to say, so if, if the industry itself or industry groups like yours, Able BC, are unable to convince the, the government of the need to resume bargaining and get this thing underway, perhaps once this uh, shortage or rationing starts to impact uh, consumers on a hot summer uh, day, uh, perhaps then uh, uh, upset consumers can be brought to, can bring pressure to bear to politicians and MLAs, the likes of which the industry itself is unable to do. Oh, Jeff.
2: Yeah, we're, we are hoping that this will be a bit of an impetus to get both sides back to the table and negotiate. I mean, you can sort of understand the union's tactic here, right? By standing in front of those warehouses and blocking access to those products, what they're doing is they're really hitting the B.C. government in the pocketbooks. Sure. B.C. government makes about $1.2 billion a year off alcohol, and it goes through those distribution centers. So they were, I think that's what they were trying to do. At the same time, you'll notice that they're not standing in front of their own liquor stores or their own cannabis stores. And I think that was an effort to not annoy consumers too much. Now this is impacting consumers. It is impacting thousands of small businesses. And ultimately, the message from us is e- enough's enough, guys. Whatever your dispute is, this cannot impact the industry that is as fragile as ours trying to recover from the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Thousands of small businesses and the millions of British Columbians who use our stores, pubs, and restaurants every single day.
0: Well, Jeff, some of those small businesses that are, are being impacted or perhaps will be impacted are, in fact, private liquor stores and private cannabis stores uh, who receive all of their stores Stock from the same point as the government stores. So they still have whatever stock they've got left, but they're not receiving anything new either, are they?
2: No, and to be clear, even when government put limits on the B.C. liquor stores, this is not government's fault. They're just trying to deal with dwindling supplies. We see the same thing in cannabis stores and in liquor stores. I was speaking of one cannabis owner last night, they said that they expect to be out of most popular products that consumers purchase by Tuesday. Mm-hmm. And that means they, if they have nothing to sell, they will close their doors temporarily and lay off their staff. This is about to have real-world impacts. I was speaking to some other owners yesterday who are the agents that import alcohol, mm-hmm. the folks who own the products in those warehouses, they haven't you know had any movement on anything since last Monday. They're now not getting payments from you know, suppliers because they, there's nobody buying alcohol. They're laying off staff this weekend. Like this, this is insane. These are the consequences of two sides that just can't get back to the negotiating table. And we're, we're fed up with this. This should not be impacting our businesses. Please, someone find the adult, get them back to the table and negotiate a fair deal. So we can all get back to work and stop damaging our industry.
0: No question about it. Jeff, setting all of this labor business aside for a moment, mm-hmm. here's, a, here's, a, here's a bone of contention that I'm sure comes up, especially at the annual general meeting of, of organizations like uh, the Alliance of Beverage Licensees or ABLE BC. And that's this, mm-hmm. whole, this whole notion of centralized distribution in the first place. There's got to be another better way, because no matter whether you're private or public, you have to go through the same bottleneck that is tightly, yeah. tightly controlled. Is there down the road a possibility for better, a more equitable distribution?
2: Absolutely. I mean, part of our job is to find solutions here, and it's difficult to make any changes in the middle of a strike. But I can give you an idea of one of the things that would help eventually. So, the first thing customers will notice shortages on our Some imported products, particularly spirits. But also those ready to drink, you know, vodka, sodas, oh, hay yeah. y'all, nudes, neutrals, mm-hmm. a lot of those products are manufactured here in British Columbia by your local craft brewery or winery. We're allowed to direct deliver anything that comes directly from a local, you know, BC winery, a BC brewery, a BC distillery, except those products. Those have to go into those warehouses and get shipped from the LDB. That makes no sense. Mm-hmm. In some cases, we have a truck going from that, you know, warehouse, uh, sort of the, the craft brewery, to a liquor store, dropping off some beer, and then continuing on to drop off those other products at the LTB, who will later deliver it to that in a store, right? So the, the, the chain doesn't make sense there, and we hope we can get some logical reforms like that, because we've just exposed how fragile this distribution this system is when you have a monopoly on
0: the warehouses. Indeed. Well, of course, monopolies are, are uh, really uh, impeding a lot of progress in many ways in many sectors of the economy these days. Uh, mm-hmm. As far as distribution networks of the future go, uh, this might, once the, uh, the details of, of the finances and the labor business are resolved, this might, in fact, leave the door open for some improvements, don't you think, Jeff?
2: Well, you can certainly see that now that this issue has been brought in into the entire $15 billion liquor industry and all of our businesses, you can see all of us are going to be talking to government about that because we we cannot have these sorts of disruptions, particularly coming out of a pandemic when businesses are just struggling to get back on their feet after losing money for two years. Don't forget, we also have a labor crisis in this product. Yes. 95% of pubs, bars and restaurants can't get enough staff out there. So, you know, you you have to imagine that the the phone calls and emails I'm getting in our industry just feels picked on. People are throwing up their hands and say, "Why, why in the world is this impacting me? And what's next? Can't you go pick it in front of somebody else or stand in front of your own stores or just leave us the heck out of this?
0: Yeah. Well, of course, then that would that would, would be no impact. There'd be no headlines. There'd be no upset people and, and therefore no ammo for, for their particular point of view. Jeff, well, we, we do hope that this is resolved as quickly as possible, that we do need some adult supervision. It would be nice to see that happen.
2: Absolutely. And we just want to get back to work and continue to do our jobs and, you know, build this economy and recover from the pandemic. And it just it feels deeply unfair. And this action you know, I know it's a strategy for negotiations, but it's irresponsible because it's having a real world impact for people who have nothing to do with this dispute.
0: Indeed. Jeff, thanks for getting up early to do this. We do appreciate it very much.
2: Anytime. Take care of yourself.
0: Laura Jones joins us now from here in Vancouver to talk about uh, the, the headlines uh, in the paper the other day, which talk about small businesses and an uptick in business bankruptcies. Laura Jones, good morning and welcome back.
3: Good morning. Nice to be back.
0: Well, it's good to have you with us, Laura. Always fun to have you on the show. Even though today it's not a very fun topic we have to talk about, as you at the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, uh, following along with the uh, business bankruptcies. You and I have talked about this a lot through the pandemic, and StatsCan is now releasing numbers this week that suggest business bankruptcies, small business, particularly Laura, have been on the rise since May of last year, with no end in sight. And yet, you tell us in a report the day after that a lot of your members aren't interested in going bankrupt. They'll just stop, turn the keys in the door, and walk away.
3: That's right. Bankruptcy is a kind of formal proceeding, and so a lot of businesses don't choose to declare bankruptcy. Only about one in 10, according to our um, membership survey results, would choose to stop operating their business in that way. It's far more likely to just, as you say, turn the key and kind of say, okay, well, I'm going to, you know, pay my bills and I'm just going to, I'm just going to have my closing sale or do whatever I'm going to do to close and I'm going to walk away from the business. And we've got about 46% of members saying that that's how they would choose to do it. Um, a lot of uncertainty too. a lot of people saying, oh, not sure. And they may not be there. Um, so really the bankruptcy numbers that stats can report the bottom line on that is they're the tip of the iceberg. Right. That's only about 10%.
0: Now, you and I have been talking uh, pretty regularly throughout the pandemic, and you were monitoring and talking to us about the surveys you were doing with your members right from coast to coast in Canada. And, and at, even at that time, starting to note uh, the casualties, if you will, of the pandemic, that number and that trend really hasn't dissipated at all, has it, Laura?
3: No, and I think you have to remember that the supports the major supports ended um in this spring in may and so a lot of businesses were hanging in. You know, can I make it? Can I with, with support once things are open again? Are my customers going to come back to the degree that it makes sense for me to stay open? And they're now starting to make those tough, really tough decisions, um, to close, close the doors. And there are three kind of big challenges that businesses are, are facing right now. You know, the first is that they came out of the, Pandemic with debt. Yes. So businesses took on a lot of debt. Across Canada, the average is $158,000 uh, of debt that they're carrying. And that sounds like a big number until you hear the BC number, which is even bigger, at $226,000. Oh my, okay.
0: Debt.
3: And so that's pandemic related debt. We're not talking about other business debts. We're talking about just to get through the pandemic. That's a big bill for a small business. Sure. And so that's – and it's very stressful. So you're coming out of a pandemic with debt um, for many businesses, not all, but, but the majority of businesses have debt, and the average is 226000 in B.C. Then your revenues aren't back to where they were pre-pandemic. Mm-hmm. So over half of businesses, 54%, so just about half, just over half of businesses, are saying their revenues are not back to where they were before the pandemic. So that's the second big challenge. And then the third big challenge, as all of us know – costs have gone up um and so that's everything from the cost of borrowing to um you know the cost of getting um goods into your business to the cost of labor um if you can even find labor so those are three pretty big headwinds that businesses are facing right now and i've said this on your show before but um at various points in the pandemic when things were more open that things look normal they look like they you know the the Parking lots can be full, or the, you know, the shops are open and the smiles are there, and the displays are out, and the goods are there, and the restaurant servers are hustling. They look normal, um, but things still are for businesses are not. Are, are, are very far from where they were pre-pandemic.
0: Interesting. You talk about the three challenges. The and, and number three included as you 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 put it down as cost. Uh, but mm-hmm. uh, we were talking with Jeff Ginyard from the uh, ABLE BC, uh, dealing with you know the hospitality sector specifically in BC, uh, now dealing with uh, the crippling effects of a strike. Uh, uh, basically, uh, t- labor is a problem still. Uh, not only exclusively by any means in the hospitality industry, but there are we still have problems right across the board, Laura, finding enough people to do all the jobs that are still wanting to be done.
3: It's totally across the board. And, you know, as a, as a, a talking head for um, aggregator for, for small businesses, I can tell you it's a problem, but there's nothing like hearing the voice of small business. I'm just going to read you one quote from our survey, and okay. there are all different kinds, but I'm going to read you a quote from an actual business owner. As the owner of a small woodworking business, I had to go back into the shop after losing one of my two employees, because I couldn't find anyone with experience. It takes a year and a half to train a well-rounded employee. I'm not physically able to work nonstop, so I'm going to shut down in June 2022. So there are different versions of this story we're hearing all the time mm-hmm. now. I mean, there's different reasons, but they often have to do with the, um, the, the, the the business owner themselves not being able to put in the kind of hours that would be required given they can't find uh, the staff um, the second element of this this business what this business owner in the construction sector is is saying that's that's true is just training you know it takes a lot to train staff and it can really burn out the business owner too when you're you're hiring you training you put the investment in and then they leave and so um, you've got all kinds of headwinds again for small business um, right now and I, I don't mean to be just totally negative sterling you, you know that business owners are a very there are lots of business owners that are doing well and they're very um resilient lot and if anyone can rise to these challenges it's small business owners and, and they've been doing it for for All through the pandemic, it's just that people are tired, you know.
0: But and we're you know we're seeing staff exactly we're seeing staffing shortages and and crises in many industries and sectors of the economy. And you're right, you know, in terms of the small business, Laura, it really quite frequently falls on the shoulders of the owners, mom and dad, or the the brothers, or whatever the original partnership is. Those two people end up running the business because they can't find anybody, and literally they run out of gas.
3: Yeah. If they're a hotel, they're making the beds. If they're in the if they're in the hospitality sector, they're, you know, they're washing. If they're in the restaurant sector, they're washing the dishes and they're they're helping to serve. They're filling in the gaps And um, and it's, you know, it's a lot.
0: So you and I have talked about this in the past. Uh, I'd like to hear your take on it now that the all of as you pointed out, all of the supplement and and the support payments have stopped. So what's the problem in terms of the labor force now? Do you reckon, Laura, given the fact that nobody's getting uh, any uh, uh, SERB payments or anything like that being paid not to work? So what's the deal?
3: Well, you know, there's just a lot of there's been a lot of shifting around. Um, People have left certain sectors and then need to be retrained one we're one we're all familiar with an example that's not small business but you know everyone's heard about the travel delays and mm-hmm. you know and the security challenges well all of those people left those jobs and so I was talking to someone at security um recently when I was traveling and they were, they were saying well we just have to retrain all these we have to hire and then retrain and it takes time so part part of Part of that is going on. People left um, if they were working as um, servers in the in restaurant sector. Um, if they didn't have work, they left. They did something else. They like it. They're sticking with that. So there's a, sh- a shift around there. And there was a recent report out, um, Sterling, also talking about how a lot of people in the 55 to 65 um, your old age demographic have kind of, I think COVID's given them a little um, reality check about how short life can be. And yes. many of them are retiring early. So, and on top of that, I mean, Canada had a looming labor um, uh, challenge with labor structural challenge, we have the, uh, as a percentage of our population the biggest baby boom um, bump, you know, of, of people in that boom leaving the labor force mm-hmm. as well. So, you know, there's some structural things happening that we knew pre-pandemic were going to be happening, and then the pandemic has kind of scrambled some eggs as well.
0: So, uh, final question to you, and it's always uh, just, just a real treat to have you on the show, Laura. We do appreciate you getting up a little early on the weekend to join us once again. Talk to us a little bit, but you mentioned this is one of the challenges. Uh, uh, interest rates uh, we're going to have another bump uh, in a few weeks probably not to the same extent as the last one but the cost of borrowing is going to increase yet again and that's another whack on a lot of small businesses isn't it
3: it is actually we um, we did ask recently if uh, but you know how big a challenge this would be we were curious about how many how many we knew there was a lot of borrowing and we were also curious. About um, you know how many people were on um, fixed versus variable kind of rates, and um, there's no question that interest rates going up is challenging for businesses. Seventy um, percent say they were negatively impacted by the Bank of Canada, the recent interest rate um hikes and you know I understand what the Bank of Canada is doing. Their their job is to worry about inflation and that is also um a, you know can be a very big challenge for the economy but it's just another cost that's going up. Our message to governments frankly um is that you know when it comes to taxes and some of the costs that are under their control is please first do no harm. Like don't increase the cost of operating. There are all kinds of headwinds for businesses right now. Right. They don't need additional costs and You know, unfortunately, there's a little bit of tone deafness, I think, um, to that. Carbon taxes going up, CPP going up, EI rates. You know, it's so I I think we have to um, continue to amplify and get that message out that uh, governments have to push pause on those increases. And municipal governments, I'm also kind of looking at you, uh, property tax increases are very tough for businesses. They get passed on in higher rents. And we hear about that all the time, too.
0: Mm-hmm. Message to governments, do no more harm. Laura no Jones, harm. thanks very much for this. By the way, you're a Vancouver person. Do you plan to visit the PNE this year? That's our poll question this morning you see on the buzz you know, line.
3: I, I, I just picked my daughter up from the PNE uh, yesterday, uh, which was yesterday or two days ago. Anyway, it was... It was hot, and they had a good time, but it was hot and whatever. But I have, no, I have no plans to go myself.
0: Well, I'm going to get back on that wooden coaster. It's been a few years. Laura, thanks very much for <laughs> <There> this. <me. laughs> Always a pleasure to have you on the show. We do appreciate it very much. Thanks.
3: Thanks. Thanks.
0: Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live, 6 to 9, weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week.